welcome to the David and Ron Show podcast. How are you, Ron? Not too bad yourself? I'm good. Last week, we didn't record primarily because we were dealing with Hurricane Henri in the area. And I mean, we had a lot of rain. We had localized flooding. There were some, I think, power outages in the area. And today when we're recording, there is Hurricane Ida that is approaching the Gulf Coast. It looks like it potentially, I think it's currently a Category 4 hurricane, and it very likely will make landfall in or near Louisiana sometime today. And today is also the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, when I think Katrina made landfall at or around Louisiana, which is interesting that, you know, the timing of everything. But out in Louisiana and and the nearby areas, pretty much local officials were pretty much telling people, you know, if you are pretty much by the water, that they need to evacuate because literally yesterday was pretty much, by end of day yesterday, it was pretty much the deadline because it's supposed to make landfall today. So there's a lot going on. I mean, in the Northeast and in the New England regions, usually we're not facing too much in terms of hurricanes. And most of the time we'll get the tail end. Like Ida, I think we're going to get later in the week in New York, we'll get the tail end of it where we'll get some heavy rainfall. There could be localized flooding. But we're usually not getting the brunt of the impact. That's not to minimize the effect because you can have power outages. You look at something like Superstorm Sandy, a collection of events that come together and unfold. And as a result, you know, with the storm surge that caused the power outages that caused a lot of damage to the city and to the adjacent regions. So it's not something to minimalize, but normally we're not in that path of dealing with hurricanes. So that's kind of something I just wanted to start off by, by talking about. Obviously, when this episode goes up, it'll be a week after. We'll probably be at that point looking at what has happened in terms of the remnants and the damage that's been caused. I know like regions like New Orleans and all the, the areas in the Gulf Coast, they've pretty much done what they can over the years to reinforce the areas against storm surge, against flooding, against the potential damage. But a lot of those areas, the big difference is, is like their power, for example, their power lines are above ground. They're not underground. So they face power outages that can last days or even weeks. And so we've seen that tremendous damage. So hopefully... You know, we're thinking of the best, but, you know, they're planning for the worst, and we'll see what happens there. So let's go to the first thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, lately I've been dealing with a lot of uh, these little minor plumbing-type repairs. And you start to learn a lot of different things about washers and screws and all sorts of things that, that go wrong. And, I mean, you, as someone who owns your own home, You've seen that because there's a lot of things that you have to kind of fix yourself and do yourself and then at times know when to bring a professional in. For example, you deal with like faucets, for example. A lot of the faucets use the old screw and washer and you know that washers over time degrade, screws degrade over time and it becomes a pain because if you have like an old faucet that or any plumbing that you don't know what brand it is or who the manufacturer is, that you have to kind of figure these things out. Sometimes you can take a part to a hardware store and say, okay, hey, do you have a replacement for it? And then other times are, well, this is the only part. If I take this out, none of this other plumbing works. 
And so it's impossible to do. So what I am seeing is kind of the complexity that's involved in the process and also then dealing with things like, you know, when a screw won't come out and trying to figure out, well, what are you supposed to do and doing kind of like makeshift repairs. What are some of like the things that you've had to, to deal with yourself in terms of home repair that you're learning about and sometimes the frustrations that you have to, to go through? Yeah, definitely. There's been some plumbings. You know, I mentioned previously I had an issue with my kitchen sink where the pipes were corroded to the just the point where you really couldn't repair it. And I had to get someone in the building to help pretty much fix it for me because I had no experience in that. But it was also something pretty complex that related to, you know, how the, the water flows out. So that's not really something you want to play around with yourself because you could just make a huge mess of that. So something like that was good to call the building maintenance just because they realized, well, your other pipes are old too. So do you want to replace those because those are just going to break at some point anyway. So you fix one thing, it's going to break. Another piece is going to break at some point. You don't know when. Might as well just get it completely redone. Versus in my bathroom, I had changed out the faucet when I moved in. That was something more you can do yourself. You could just turn off the water take it out, put it in. That wasn't as complex as... What that's, assuming that, that's assuming that whoever put it in, everything was standardized because most of the times like your, your sinks are standardized now in terms of where like if it's right. a single faucet on each side, the hot and the cold, if it's like a two-piece where it's the faucet is like one piece with the handles and the faucet, that it's, it's standard and that it fits into the holes exactly. It's right. not like something that was custom manufactured that, no. oh... Wait, the, these holes are, like, not the right distance apart. Exactly. It, it was pretty standard, so that was easy. Pull it out, put the new one in, and that was really it. There wasn't any complex plumbing or anything like that. So very simple, straightforward, and that's something that you're able to do just by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think the most complicated situations that I normally run into are trying to get, like, the locking nuts off because right. sometimes those are just, like, It's sealed really tight. Right, exactly. Right. Or just kind of understanding which way it turns. Because sometimes if you use like the general rules of clockwise, counterclockwise, lefty, loosey, righty, tidy, that it doesn't always apply because you'll run into a situation where it's the opposite. Yep. It goes the opposite. Some of it's for safety. So that I think I had read like with stoves that the gas lines are specifically designed to turn a certain direction so that you can't connect the wrong connectors to it. But that's the thing about plumbing is it's not always in the same direction that you hope it would be. So if you've never done it before, it's like, well, which way do I turn? Because you don't want to break anything either. You want to be very careful. I told you, like, dealing with a fill valve, for example, the f main nightmare is that you can't get the, the parts off. You know, putting it back in, you can watch as many videos, and YouTube, like I said, is great to watch all these videos to show you how to yep. do it and get it done right. But the problem is, if you can't get the thing off in the first place, it's such a pain. And when you deal with things like stems and, and cartridges that have the washer and the screw, well, what happens if the screw is completely degraded? You can't get the screw off. And so you can't get the screw off. You can't get the washer, the new washer on and secured properly. And so then you have to like replace the entire stem or the cartridge. But the problem is then if you don't know what brand you have, because if you were to look at stems and, and cartridges, and what I did find out is a company called Danko, they make a lot of plumbing replacement parts. They have like a stem finder. And what you can do is you can take a picture of your stem and then upload it to their stem finder, and then it will give you 
matching images and part numbers of what it could be. And I recently had to use that to try to figure it out. But it's not right. like it gives you the perfect match. It's literally you eyeball. Here's what my stem or cartridge looks like. Here are the suggested ones. And then what looks close enough to it that might fit. And there's still a little bit of trial and error. I mean, the safer bet, again, is you go take it out, take it to your local hardware store, show it to them, and they can probably find the part faster. But what if, like, I know that I've been watching a lot of these YouTube videos recently where they'll have, like, these plumbing nightmares where there aren't proper shutoff valves and the mains are in the basement. And then when they come up to the individual faucets, you have to literally shut everything down in order to make a single repair which is annoying. And I mean, older homes and older apartment buildings are like that, where they didn't have all the necessary shutoff valves in the right places. And sometimes when you mess around with shutoff valves that are older, okay, they might start leaking or they don't work properly, so they don't actually shut anything off. So it's like all sorts of weird things like that. And if you're not familiar with it, you don't want to have to deal with it. Exactly. So I mean, that's always in my kitchen, I don't have an actual valve. And it was a deal breaker because when I wanted to change my sink out initially... I was like, how do I turn off the water? Right. So I had to use pliers and just sort of turn it using the pliers. So, right. Because there's no valve on there, so there's nothing I can do, really. So I replaced that, that piece of it then, sure. But again, that's probably a professional or something like that. Yeah, and also me. if you deal with like much older buildings where they have maybe older pipes and then they add like the extensions, it's tricky too because even plumbers don't want to touch that stuff because the older pipes, you know, those Might can degrade and you know, fall apart. And then it's a pain to have to repair because you have to rip everything out. And plumbers, when they have to do repairs, they can rip open your wall and fix the pipes, but they don't put your walls back up. You then have to hire a general contractor to come back right. and put the walls back up. So if you're a homeowner, that's like a pain they have to deal with because the plumber can only deal with the pipes. They don't right. deal with anything that involves with that. Just exactly. like if you get an HVAC company to come in to fix an air conditioning, yeah, they can install like certain electrical components, like certain breakers. They can install that tied to your... AC, but they can't replace your entire electrical panel. That's what an electrician has to come in and do. And then there are some HVAC companies that they don't do any of the, the electrical wiring, and you have to go out and, and hire an electrician to fix it. So it's very complicated. And the other thing that I notice is, you know, you have an adjustable wrench, and having an adjustable wrench is really important because most of the time one size does not fit all, and you don't want to have 20 wrenches, so you need to get an adjustable wrench. And so I got one of these that also can go 90 degrees so that when you have tough spots and, and it it's not like the smoothest thing to get to work that way because it's right. like even when you lock it into position it kind of like wobbles but then i also notice like sometimes with wrenches the problem is even when you have a grip it's not like there are teeth on it to grab on so like it just kind of flies off and so then you have things like channel lock pliers and the big plumbers pipe wrench that they yeah. have Oh, yeah. So you have all these like tools, and it's like, why can't you just have like one tool that does it's everything? A universal tool, right? Yeah, just, exactly. Just you don't have to, the board. to get like all these different tools because it's like such a pain. Because a wrench, you think, oh, yeah, it should fit the notches. But then a lot of times, like you get it on there. There's and no like, space. Okay. Yeah. And when it's adjust, even if it's adjustable, it's not like it's a lock. So what ends up happening, some of these wrenches, like the, when you make that turn, it, the, it opens back up. So it doesn't have that good grip. Right. And that's kind of annoying. And that's where, like, you can use things like channel lock or a pipe wrench. But the problem, those have teeth, but then you don't want to damage any of the nuts or the bolts or anything like that that you're turning. Exactly. That, that's the problem when you're using tools, right? You don't know if it's going to end up defacing it or damaging it or doing something to it that might affect it in the future. Yeah, and it's the same thing with, like, screwdrivers because if you don't get 
and there is a difference with getting like cheap screwdrivers and good screwdrivers. If you get a cheap screwdriver, what happens is the tips of the screwdrivers start to break Strips, off. Yeah. Yeah, they start to strip. And so if you're trying to remove a screw, what ends up happening is not only does the screwdriver strip, but the screw strips. And if that happens, then you can't get the screw off. But if you get like a higher quality screwdriver, then usually it's a little better. But the thing is that you always, over time, the, the screws degrade. And so once that happens, it's very hard to get a screw off. You would think that you, know, you take a pair of pliers, put it on top, and start turning, and it just, theoretically, it doesn't turn. It doesn't, it doesn't work, work like that way. That. Yeah, so it's always a little bit of a frustration. So let's move on. Amazon Locker. Have you ever used an Amazon Locker? I have not. I've used it. It was interesting because I see the Amazon Lockers all over the places. They have it at like Whole Foods and Rite Aid and in other places. So I was curious once to see how it works. And it's fairly simple. You know, you place an order, and if your order can be delivered to an Amazon locker, they'll deliver it there, you get a notification, and you'll get a barcode to scan, and also the manual code to enter in the event that the barcode doesn't work. And that was, like, one of the things I was worried about. It's like, what happens if you bring the barcode on your phone and the scanner doesn't scan for some reason? Because you know right, that sometimes scanners don't scan. There and you're like, oh, no, I can't get my stuff now. Exactly. I mean, the number of times like you go to do self-checkout at stores and you're like trying to scan something and it doesn't scan properly. Well, what happens if you can't scan the barcode? So they right. do give you a manual code to enter. So you go there, you get the manual code, or you can scan the barcode. And as soon as you do it, then a message pops up that says, stand away from the locker. Because all you have is a bunch of lockers that are automated. So what will happen is that when you scan your code it will identify like the proper locker where your merchandise is stored and the door will, will open. It's not like it flies open. It like it opens slowly. But if you're like standing in front of the door that's opening, then it'll hit you in the face. So you don't want to be standing by the door. You know, the other thing I was thinking about is, well, what happens if they put your stuff in one of the higher lockers and you're too short to reach it? Right. Like how are you supposed to get it? Because it's like no step stool or ladder over there for you to go and grab it. And then what happens, like in the worst case, is you can't reach and some, you ask someone to come over and they come over and they slam the door and close the locker. It's like, how do you get your stuff now? Because I, I don't think you can, Anyone I don't wants. know if you can go back in and like use the code again to unlock it after right. it opens. So it's one of those strange things. But it is convenient because if you have trouble receiving your deliveries, because a lot of times like Amazon now, they, they some things ship through like the post office, some through UPS, some through... Amazon's own delivery people and some through like a local courier. And so if you have problems getting your packages, sending it over to a locker can be convenient if you have like a location near you to go pick it up because then you can just go scan your code and pick it up and you have your merchandise. You don't have to wait all day for the delivery or worry about missed deliveries. I mean, with UPS now, a lot of places in your area probably have the UPS access points, so they'll leave packages there where you can go pick it up, and that can be convenient too, especially with, like, older buildings where you might not have a buzzer or a doorman or a concierge or any of that where someone can accept your package that you can ultimately, for your own convenience, go to one of these Amazon lockers and pick up your, your merchandise. So I think it is a good thing. My one experience so far was fine. I was able to pick it up, and I didn't have any issues. But it just kind of runs through your mind sometimes of, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? Because you, you also only get three days to pick up your, your merchandise, so that's not like a lot of time. So you have to make sure you time it that you don't have that delivery while you're going to be away. 
for like right. three days. What happens after three days? They take it away? They they return it, yeah. They return to center. Because I guess they'll, you're using a blocker, right? That's why. Right. So and they'll refund you, but you know, probably take a little time for the refund to hit your account after they pick it up. But it's convenient if you can use it. But then, yeah, you only have a very short period, so you have to time it right to make sure that you can pick it up around that time when it's delivered within those three days. All right, so let's move on. Why don't major appliances have wheels? Because have you ever run into that problem where you have like a major appliance and you need to move it, and you realize like there are no casters, there are no wheels to it, so it's well, I guess a major appliance should get out there. beyond that, right? It should be well for cleaning yeah, well, what's purposes. There, that's it. Like let's like behind your refrigerator, you don't know what's behind your refrigerator. Right? I agree, but how many people actually would go behind it to clean it that often? They if I just leave some it, people don't just static, I mean, right? It's there. Yeah, it's some there. people don't. And usually, what happens is the only time they'll go back there is if they're replacing their fridge, if there's an electrical issue, if you have like an ice maker, or you have a filtered water system. Right, if any type of there. maintenance or replacement. Right, that's probably the only time you'll end up going back there. I mean, think about like a stove. You shouldn't even really be moving a stove either because. That's yeah, stoves, to a gas line stoves are a little different because, yeah, because you have the, the gas lines hooked up there, and ideally you're not going to move it. And most of the time that's kind of built into a very tight space. Fridges, and that's the, pro- that's the problem when you go into, like, new homes or, like, apartments that have been renovated is everything is so tightly built that if it needs to be replaced, everything has to be a certain size. Otherwise, it doesn't fit. Right. Same with, like, if you get a window air conditioner and you have the in-wall units. Well, the in-wall units, some places, the in-wall units are like a fixed size. So if you get a unit that's too big, it won't fit. If you get a unit that's too small, you have an empty gap. Right. And there's no standardizing because like AC manufacturers, they're going to switch the design of their equipment over time based on what is available and how efficient they can make the units. So it becomes a little bit challenging if you want to get this brand, but they don't make it that fits this size. You have to get a different brand, something like that. But you have the same thing with, like, washing machines, for example. Like, washing machines, washer-dryer units that they install, if you needed to move it, there's just no way of moving it because they don't have wheels. I mean, there are third-party solutions now where it's, like, a combination of steel and plastic where it's resizable or adjustable so that you can put appliances on and it'll hold up to a certain amount of weight, and then you can kind of roll things. It's kind of like a cart or a dolly, and you can get things like that. But... It's always interesting where you know that when you have to position a lot of these things that you may have to move it. So it wouldn't make sense to like put wheels. And if they do put wheels on things, they put like the little tiny wheels. And they're little plastic wheels that don't support anything. Whereas you need to have like the high grade two and a half, three inch wheels to really be able to, to work properly. I mean, that's something that is like, it's always one of those things that you think about. It's like, well, why don't you just put some wheels on it? It would make sense. Yeah, it would make sense, but again, I, I think for many of these, you just never plan to really move them. But it's a good point. I mean, someone who does want to clean, it, it would make it very difficult without a third-party solution. Yeah, and then the other thing is warranty, because they want you to buy warranty. that Everything is like one-year warranty or less, so you buy these new expensive products. Like a refrigerator can be six, seven, eight hundred dollars Air conditioners can range from a few hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, depending on what size BTU. Stoves, ovens, same thing. It could be six, seven, eight hundred dollars, depending on what you get, or more. And the thing is that they're only warranted for a year. And you know, like, it's not like after a year the parts aren't available. It's that they want to sell you the warranty. 
So they want to sell you year two, three, and four so that you pay for it. But then you always know that for some of these things, it's like buying a warranty and having it repaired doesn't make sense because it never works the same. I don't hear too many people who say like they buy warranty on the refrigerator and if they have to use the warranty plan to have something fixed or have it serviced that their unit is ever the same. It's always like, no, within like three months it breaks down. It doesn't work exactly the the way it used to. Exactly. Or it starts making sounds or something like that. But it's never as good once you've opened a a product and had to put it back together. It's never the same. Yeah, and a lot of times where they offer you like a replacement, it's a refurbished product. So if like within a year, for example, and I had this happen for work once where I had bought a brand new iPad for the company because we needed an iPad for the company. And so I bought it, and what happened was it was dead on arrival. So because we had AppleCare with it, when we had to get it replaced, it was automatically treated as an AppleCare replacement. And so that's kind of stupid because what ends up happening is it's brand new, it arrives dead on arrival, so now you automatically treat it as an AppleCare replacement, and in essence, you send a refurbished unit to replace it. In that situation, if it's like brand new, it should be a brand new to brand new replacement. It shouldn't be a refurbished. Now, this was years ago, so I don't know if that's changed since. I don't where think it's they, changed. They, I think it's the same situation still. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of silly that they would do it that way, that they would treat it as that type of replacement. If it's brand new, it should be replaced with brand new. If it's something that is maybe after the first year of warranty, then maybe refurbished. Right. Or, you know, at least after like six months. But still, it's like... When it's brand new, you just received it, and it's dead on arrival, it should be replaced with a brand new one. It shouldn't be a refurb unit. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. All right. Let's talk about the semiconductor chip shortage because that's having a lot of impacts with just about any sort of technology that you're trying to get. You can definitely see it with computers because, for example, I know Lenovo has been having this huge problem. I, early in the year, had to replace my Lenovo laptop And the one that I was looking for, literally, they were saying it was going to be 12 weeks out. And I was looking at other models, and it was the same thing. Anything that you wanted to customize, anything that was not a pre-configured unit was 10 to 12 weeks out. And now I think it's probably still around 4 to... The last time I looked, it was still like 4 to 6 or 4 to 8 weeks out. I know Microsoft, they had released the Surface Laptop 4 earlier this year. And after the first couple of months... It's been pretty much out of stock, at least the business series, because of this chip shortage. Rode, their Rodecaster Pro, for example, was out of stock and on back order for months. And my guess is it was probably related to the chip shortage as well. Have you seen an impact in terms of delays with chip shortages? What are sort of the impacts that you've heard about, you've seen about, or that may have affected you? We know that like Apple, for example, there's... The continued rumors that their 14 or 16-inch MacBook Pros may be coming out later this year, but some of that may have been impacted by the same shortage. Yeah, I think it's morely at work. We do see that with Lenovo where you're trying to order devices for replacements for people and they're just not coming in on time. There's been an ongoing delay for quite some time now. And even with Mac, sometimes with our custom models, yeah, Definitely, we see that more in, in the work world, not so much, you know, in, in my personal life of seeing things, usually things I need to buy, they're available, right? But I think it's mainly when you're trying to buy the stuff in bulk, that's really where you're seeing this as an impact. Right. I mean, it's definitely affecting a lot of businesses that rely on 
I think even the cars, trip. the car industry is yeah, the car industry as well because, because they I think are chips for any for component yeah any components that they need as well for repairs that there's a huge delay, and there doesn't seem to be any timing as to when things will will catch up. I mean, there were already concerns last year when Apple was talking about like iPhone 12 production, whether or not COVID and the shutdown of factories were going to affect the ability to get products out in time. And this is kind of the same thing where now when you get to 18 months later, you start to see, okay, this is just kind of a long churning effect that has not resolved itself because there are a lot of manufacturers that are still unable to get products out in a timely manner because there's this global shortage and it becomes a huge problem. Like I was saying, like the Roadcaster Pro, when we first got the first one that we were using for the podcast two years ago, at that point there wasn't a shortage, but the problem was it was a really popular device that we were already facing, I think, a couple months back order. Then we had ordered ours, and then after we got ours, I think a few weeks later it was on back order again. And then with the pandemic, a lot of people have been using the Roadcaster Pro as the audio interface for streaming and for other types of production. I know iHeart has used it with a lot of their radio personalities who are working remotely or working from home using this equipment. So it's a very popular piece of equipment. So it's definitely an impact when you know they don't have what they need in order to get the product out places and this was on backwater for a good portion of this year i think at the beginning of the year i was kind of tracking to see when it'd be available because last year i was saying that okay what i might end up doing is when i was still using my blue yeti mic to record i was thinking of getting the rocaster pro and then ultimately when zoom came out with the podcast p8 then i opted to go with that once it became available and then i'll circle back around as to why road is coming back up again but let's jump to the next topic and then I'll come back and explain the reasoning behind that. So I was just thinking, talking about all this technology and stuff, how much I miss the days when we used to have J&R here in the city. And they had the music store, the video store, the electronics store, the computer store, and you could buy all that stuff in, in one place. And right. now it's like a lot of this stuff I have to go elsewhere for. I mean, computers, at the beginning, I used to go to J&R and we used to buy like our first few laptops that we got and even our desktop computer the Sony Vial that we had gotten right. for home at the time, that that came from, from J&R. But a lot of the stuff I get now, it's like I'll order like laptops so I can get direct from the manufacturer because I normally have to customize them. But all like this other electronic stuff that I need to get, I'll usually go to B&H, which is another big electronic audio video store in New York. I've never actually shopped in store. I've usually just do like pickup orders and they really have a streamlined process for pickup orders because since the pandemic started when you order for pickup and you get that notification when you go there to pick up your items everything is packaged as if it's like going to be mailed or shipped so it has like your label on it everything is pre-packaged and ready to go so it's not like they have to find stuff or find a bin and bag it and things like that so they're very organized which is great but i have been curious and eventually i want to go and kind of do like in-store shopping because they have this conveyor belt system, this unique system where when you're shopping, you put everything into like, I guess the basket that goes along the conveyor belt. I don't understand exactly how it works so that when it's time to check out, 
your baskets are already there. You don't have to like lug your stuff all around the store like you right. normally would do. So you're imagining like if you're buying like camera equipment and lenses and things like that, you don't want to carry a basket full of that walking around the store. And then everyone's got their basket and you have to worry about like bumping into people and navigating around. So, you know, they have the system with an overhead conveyor belt where you can pretty much put your stuff in there and then it kind of like zips it across to the checkout counter so you don't have to carry it. I don't exactly know how it works like when you go throughout the store and you're buying stuff, how exactly you do it. Maybe you still carry a basket and then at the end you do it. So I'm kind of curious as to how that works. But they're very streamlined over there. So that's definitely what I like about it. And then they're very reputable. So it's always easier like if I have to buy camera equipment or audio equipment or like, you know, anything that we use for the podcast, for example, it's easy to order from B&H and then just go there and pick it up. Or you can, I mean, you can have it shipped to your home as well or to your office, wherever you need it shipped to. But I like the pickup process because I can get it that day. I don't have to wait for shipping. I don't have to worry about it not being delivered because, you know, the delivery person can't deliver it for some reason. Right. So it's kind of exactly. easy enough to do that. So it's convenient. But like going back to J&R, it's like I remember the days when, you know, how many hours you could spend going from store to store, shopping, go up to the music section, like go through like the budget you know, they used to have the vinyl record stills, cassette tapes, eventually CDs, and then right. you go down the video store and kind of just walk through aisles. And Good way to just kill there. time. You know, that, yeah. that was like a nice thing about it. Yeah. And then they eventually opened up a little cafe in the computer store. So you like grab a snack or a drink or whatever and just sit up at the cafe and just kind of just look down at the store. So it was an interesting and good experience. And then I always remember this one story that I mention all the time. That one time where I had a whole bunch of stuff that I bought from the musical. And this is probably like the one time that I was like not so happy about it was I bought all this stuff from, I think, like one of the music stores. I'm getting ready to go to check out and the salesperson comes up and says, oh, you know, can I help you with that? And I'm thinking that they're going to help me like get it over to checkout because I right. like, have no hands. So he comes over and he takes everything, brings it over to the counter and writes up a sales receipt. Then takes the sales receipt, puts it on top of everything, hands everything back to me and just points me to the checkout. And it's like all he was trying to do is get, you know, his commission. Get the commission off of that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that was all like work probably, that he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, that was probably like the one time that I was like really ticked off because it's like, you know, I'm expecting help as in, you know, help me get to checkout or get me a basket or something because I'm holding all this stuff. And it's like, no, I'm just going to take it off your hands, take it to a counter, write up a sales receipt so I can earn my commission because you did nothing to help me the right, entire time exactly. outside of that. Give it right back to me with the sales receipt. And then send me over to the checkout, right. which was well. Silly. We had one other incident there where we were buying the CB radios. Yeah, remember that guy? He was he was partially eating his lunch or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And we were looking for help, and he's like, "Are you buying something?" And we're looking at each other. Well, we would be if we could see the stuff, right? To see right. the products in the back that he has to let us see first, right? Because they would have a lot of the product samples locked up in the cabinets. And then once he started helping us, you asked him, what are the specs? And he says, there are no specs. And then you say, yeah. well, what type of batteries does he use? <laughs> that's a spec. <laughs> like, well, that's a spec. So I think, uh, yeah, outside of that one, that was the, the one other time where it was not such a great experience. Yeah. I mean, some people were helpful. There was like the right. one who worked in one of the electronics department who was always very helpful if he needed anything. We would usually try to go back to him to give him the commissions when right. we needed yep. to buy stuff. But yep. then there were a lot of other ones who were not very helpful. 
at times. And I mean, look, there are some sales reps that are great, some who are just out there to earn their commissions and, and that's it. And I also get that the base pay isn't always that great. And so you have to work to earn the commissions. But, you know, there are a lot of them who I see they work hard to earn their commissions. And then there are a lot of them who like literally do nothing. And they just kind of like walk up there to get receipts. Right. I've even had some, I think, in the past when I go to checkout with a lot of stuff that I buy, they're like looking to see if there's a sales order to go with it. And they, I remember one time they asked me if there was like a sales order to go with it. I said, like, no. I said, like, oh, no, no one helped you. I like, no. Because I just walked around the store and I picked up the stuff that I needed and I brought it to checkout. So right. there, there wasn't anything. If you went to the counters where you had to get something that was locked up, then it would right. be Right, that's what I thought would be in scope for commission, not just random stuff. Because there were some times where they just had your slip and you're like, wait, yeah. you didn't do anything. Why am I yeah. taking the slip for? Right. And then the other thing is that a lot of times, it would also depend on the product, I guess, and the value because there were a lot of items where when they write up the slip, like they don't give you the product to go to checkout. They have to walk it with you to checkout and then right. hand it to them in order to do. Or if it was like something that they had to pick up from the basement, they had the little cylindrical chute that they yeah. throw the receipt in and it'd go down and then it'd go downstairs. The people in the fulfillment department would see the order and then they send it back up. And then they have to match your yellow slip with the, I think it was like a pink or the white slip. Because it was like, it was carbon copy receipt so there's a white sheet that i think that the register holds on to and then there's the yellow slip that you get that's your receipt and then there's the pink that is what's used for fulfillment or vice versa with the white and the pink i know the yellow is definitely your receipt and then the white and pink would be between the different teams right between the register and the fulfillment so between those two they would you know get the fulfillment done but then it was also weird sometimes where you know that you purchased something earlier than someone else and you're waiting a fulfillment and your product doesn't come up it's like everyone else's product comes up and you're like still standing there waiting and they'll see you there and they'll ask you for your slip and they're and they're like wondering where the order is like what could you not find it in fulfillment and sometimes that's the case they wouldn't know where the product is right because the warehouse is down in their basement and they just have like a lot of stuff in there and then downstairs also you would have where your returns department would be so you'd have to go downstairs and there was like a line there. And there's no, I think the way it works is there's no cash refunds. I think everything was store credit. At, at the yep. beginning, it, there might have been like a refund to a credit card, but I think eventually it was like all store credit. And I think a lot of stores do that now. It's like just store credit. So you have to make sure you use it. But J&R was always easy to find something to to use it on right. eventually. You know, in cartridges or other miscellaneous supplies. A number of the printers that we had early on, like the Epson printers we bought from there, I think some of the HP printers we bought from there over time. And then, I mean, now it's kind of different. Now you can buy anywhere, but shipping is always kind of a pain because if it gets damaged in transit, you have to, like, ship the thing back, which is annoying. So it's easier to kind of, like, pick something up from the store, but you still run the risk of, you know, maybe they gave you something that was sitting on a shelf that fell off the shelf, for example. Right. You never know. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you see the box and it's, like, messed up, then sure, you'll know. Oh, yeah, if there's a ding in the box. But, you know, sometimes you get, like, a box that's in perfect condition, and inside it's like something's broken or something's missing, and it doesn't work out well. I mean, you take, like I said, like the iPad that I had to buy for work, and I think this was, like, one of the first-gen iPads. There was nothing wrong with the box. The packaging was in perfect condition. It was just it wouldn't turn on. It wouldn't charge. It wouldn't do anything. It was dead on arrival. 
And so I'm calling like Apple support about it. And they're like running me through like the routine steps. And they said, it's probably dead on arrival, but because it's Apple care, it's automatically, it's an Apple care. Right. Repair or return. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing, because we had to get a SIM card with it. And I don't think we ever activated SIM card, but it was the model with the SIM card. And so we got it with it and they never said remove the SIM card before you return it. They just said like, put it back in the package and return it. So return it. And when I get the replacement, I call them back up and say, well, we don't have a SIM card. Well, you're supposed to take the SIM card from your old one and put it in. Well, you didn't tell me that. You didn't say take the SIM card out. This yeah. is also an unactivated SIM. There's like no phone number to it, nothing. It's not one that was activated yet. So I'm like telling them, it's like, yeah, no one said and nothing in the instructions at the time said to remove the SIM card. You just said return it. So I returned it. So I said, well, what you can do is you can go to a local store to request the SIM card. So I think it was like an AT&T SIM. So this is like early days because when they first partnered with AT&T. Right. So I, I have to call like all the local AT&T stores and ask them about it. It's like, no, you know, we charge like $10 for whatever. And it's like, no, I was told that it's supposed to be free. that There's no charge for it. And this is what Apple said. So I finally like get a manager at one of the local stores and say, yes, it's, it's free in this situation. So just come by the store, mention my name, and they'll get you it. So I go to the store, and I talk to, like, one of the, the reps. And I remember, like, you know, I said, I need a SIM card for this iPad, whatever. So, like, well, the iPad comes with the SIM. If you bought it, it was a, yes, I know. But the thing is, and I tell them the story. I said, well, I think there's a charge for it. So I, I spoke to the manager earlier. Oh, you spoke to the manager. So it's always different when he's, like, already spoke to the manager. His name is right. whatever. He it, says, exactly. okay, let me go find him. Go to the back. Manager comes out with a SIM card and gives it to me, and, and it's done. And some stores, yeah, they do charge you for SIM. Years ago when I had a T-Mobile BlackBerry, there was something screwed up with my SIM. I think it was causing the BlackBerry to, like, shut off and reboot and do all sorts of weird things, and I'd get SIM errors on it. So I went to a local T-Mobile store. No questions asked. It's like, okay, no problem. This is an older SIM. They transfer everything, pop in the new SIM, and I'm on my way in, like, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Right. What, what, yeah, when those situations come up, that's then it's free. Like, I've had a few where, yeah, I had a new phone, still using right. an old SIM, Having weird issues, similar to what you said, went to the store. They said, yes, it could be the SIM. They just do a copy of the SIM, and that's really it, and you're on your way. Yeah, exactly, and it's easy enough. There are some places like, I think, Verizon, if you order a new device that doesn't come with a SIM or you need a SIM, they can send you the SIM for free. There's no cost to it, or if you have to replace your SIM. I think I had to do that with my phone because I think the issue was when I was upgrading to the iPhone 12 Pro Plus, the recommendation on the site when I ordered it was that if you have an old SIM that you should think about getting a new SIM. So I ordered right. a new SIM and then I had to go and go through the activation process because it's there's a very systematic process that you have to follow to make sure that the SIMs activate properly. Right. And if you don't follow that process, it doesn't work. Because I've seen some people where they try to do it where they order a new SIM and then they can't get it activated and then they have to go to a store. And that was like what I was trying to avoid. So it's like, okay, I just want to make sure that I do this exactly right so that my old device is still working, activate the new SIM, pop it in, get everything transferred, and be up and running. And then you can get rid of the, the old SIM. But if you do it wrong, then it doesn't work. Yeah, there's, there's something weird with the SIMs because I know at work there was someone once they put, it, put the SIM in a MiFi device. Right just to test something, and 
then they went ahead to use the SIM for what it was supposed to be for, for a phone, and it wouldn't activate properly. Right. It just had issues. So when they called them up, they said, and they gave the scenarios that, yeah, you can't do that. When you do that, it, it just screws up the SIM. So you have to yeah. use a brand new SIM. Right, exactly. And it's annoying because if you're in a rush to get things done, then it's a problem. Right, and, and also, you would think they're universal, right? But it's not. Right. I think it's that initial activation. Once it's activated, it's fine. You can do whatever you want, put in different right. devices. But it has to do with that initial activation. If it's not done in the proper device that I guess it's supposed to be for, it screws it all up. Yeah, exactly. So you have to follow that process. And then the other thing is if you're moving to like an iPhone, for example, iPhones use nano SIMs. So if you have a, a normal SIM card and you move to an iPhone, now you have to get a nano SIM. So yep. if you happen to order a non-SIM device, then the problem is, well, you don't have a SIM card now. So that's a problem. So then you have to go to right. the carrier and get a SIM card for it. Exactly. So it doesn't work. I mean, early on they said like, you know, because Apple had their own SIM cards that you were supposed to be able to use those Apple SIMs. Never happened. I don't know right. of any carriers where, any of the major carriers at least, where you could just use the Apple SIM in place of like a Verizon SIM, an AT&T SIM, a T-Mobile SIM. So I don't think, maybe there are some carriers that allow you to do it. But as far as I remember, I don't think any of the major ones allowed you to use the Apple SIM in lieu of their own SIM. Probably outside the U.S. Yeah. I guess like international. I, think I mean, really but even for. then, like if you need to use your phone international, they tell you go buy an international SIM so that you can swap it out when you travel to that country. And then you can swap it back to your normal SIM. It depends because there are certain plans that at least Canada and Mexico, for example, where some plans will include like coverage in Canada and Mexico. But the thing is, it's limited per day as to how, right. how much time you have, how much data you have, and how much uh, airtime that you have, yeah, mm-hmm. in terms of the number of minutes. Because I remember a couple of years ago traveling to Canada, my plan had the Canada coverage in there, but I was limited to the number of minutes per day and the amount of data. I think the data was limited to forget it was like 500 meg or something it was like really limited and then when it you run out you'd have to wait until the next day to do it and i didn't want to pay extra to get like coverage in canada because why bother doing that because the other thing is it also depends on the network out there and how your speeds are and the speeds weren't great so it's like i'm not gonna pay extra if the quality and the speeds aren't great even in the u.s when you're in certain areas, at least when I traveled like four or five years ago and I was doing road trip through Nevada, Arizona, Arizona especially, there are a lot of towns and cities where signal strength is really weak. And then the internet out there isn't great either. So it's like if it's not going to be good, then you want to be paying extra for added services. I mean, domestically, usually your plans now, your minutes are unlimited, your texting is unlimited. It's just your data that really is what you're... what you're paying for but even for that it was slow so it's like there's no point and you couldn't make phone calls because you had like no reception so it really didn't help half the time and you're not going to like call from a hotel room even though you have a landline because they charge an arm and a leg for for the cost yeah exactly it's not worth it right nothing nothing is free yeah and i think i've mentioned this story before but there was that one hotel in arizona where they literally had a letter from like the mayor of the town of the city apologizing for the slow internet and saying that they were working on trying to like get the speeds up because we had poor cell reception. You couldn't get LTE to work out there and the hotel internet was like dial up speeds. So literally you were cut off if you needed to do anything. 
Oh, it man. was good in that if you wanted to be away from work and just have peace and quiet from everything. Just disconnect, right? Yeah. Yep. Those few days that you were down there, it was probably the best time because it's like there's no point checking your phone outside of looking at what time it is and what the weather's like. Because you, know outside of that, you don't need really. your phone for anything else. It's like peace and quiet. But then right. also out there, we had gone to like one hotel at night and then we we're going to the restaurant, which was like right maybe like. 30 feet away, 20 feet away from the hotel. It's just kind of around the corner. And the problem was because they have rules about lighting because of the aesthetics, there aren't like a lot of lampposts. So you go out in New York City and you go to Times Square, it's like lit up. You can find your way around even at midnight if you need right. to. But out there, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock when it's dark, it's just pitch black. So you'd have to take your phone out, turn on your the flashlight. phone light, yeah. yeah, the flashlight, and... Use that to navigate the walkway because you can't see anything. It's wow. so dark out there. So it would be like a good idea if you have like a keychain flashlight, carry a keychain flashlight or carry a flashlight with you because you can't see anything out there. You could see where the restaurant was because it's, you know, because that's lights lit, right? inside yeah. are lit. Right. But the walking path there had no light. So think about going into like a playground or a park in the middle of the night if all the lights were off. Right. That's kind of like what you're looking at there because they just aesthetically – they want the natural beauty of the area, so they don't want all the extra lights like you would have in the city. I mean, even... Right, because it would city, get in the way, right? You'd, right. You'd see that. You take a picture, you'd see it lamppost. Yeah, but even like some of the expressways or the highways or whatever, once you get past like the city limits and you go further out, sometimes there's not as good lighting. And so Arizona, for example, when you drive those roads, especially the wavy, windy roads, they have like speed limits of, I think, like 10... 10 to 50 miles an hour is the recommendation that you should go. Mm -hmm. And there are cars, like, you can tell the locals because the locals will just speed through those. Like, they know Because the they know it. Right. right. But you yourself, if you're leading the way, it's like, you can only see the distance of your headlights. You, that's literally all you can see. You can't see past that because there are no other lights. There right. are no lights for the roads. So driving at night is really hard and really dangerous. So you want to go really slow. And that's why a lot of people don't like night driving because you can't rely on the sights and what you can see to help navigate the path. So it's a lot right. easier to get lost. So it's very different. So imagine like driving without GPS in the middle of the night and just being planted somewhere, even in the city, if you don't know right. where to go. So that's one of the hard parts. So let's circle back around to what I was talking about, the Rodecaster Pro. A few weeks ago, after using pretty much the Podrap P8 for the last eight months of recording, I decided to just the bullet and get another roadcaster pro which was originally what i was going to do and we talked about this when when we were going to do the podcast remotely and the p8 had a lot of great features it still has a lot of great features because it has that smaller form factor you can run it off a number of different power sources you can plug it in you can run it off double a batteries you can run it off a portable battery it uses the standard sd card instead of the micro sd which the roadcaster pro uses the audio tracks when you export from the P8 are louder than what you get from the Roadcaster. So usually when I'm editing, I have to boost up the volume on the tracks from the Roadcaster. I don't have to do that with the P8. You have more inputs, more XLR inputs, more headphone inputs. You have six on the P8 versus the four that's on the Roadcaster Pro. Exporting is a lot faster because you're just mounting a drive and copying over the files versus like with the Roadcaster Pro, everything saved to the 
microSD is in their polywave format. And so it has to kind of stitch the polywaves together and then export it through the companion software. And you don't want to copy files directly off the microSD early on. That's what I tried. And when you get those polywave files, literally, if you have a 90-minute episode, you're going to have, for every track, three sets of tracks that you have to stitch together. And it's very hard to do. So it's easier just to use the companion app. The sound panels, there are, I think you can have more sounds on the P8 than you can have on the Rodecaster Pro. It has a much smaller plug on the P8 than the Rodecaster Pro because the Rodecaster Pro has the big brick that you, you know, like a traditional laptop power brick. And at the time, the P8 was $100 cheaper than the Rodecaster Pro. It started at $499. The Rodecaster Pro starts at $599. The P8 now actually went up in price by $50. It's $549. So the cost difference isn't as big. But there are certain negatives with the P8 that over the last eight months that I've seen. One is the lack of noise gate functionality, which the Rodecaster Pro has built in. And the sound quality on the Roadcaster Pro just generally sounds a lot better than on the P8. I'm able to get consistent quality sound. P8 is kind of, it depends on your mic, it depends on your settings. There's a lot of like back and forth that I've been through using the P8 versus from the days when we started using the Roadcaster Pro. Mouth smacks and like mouth noises, you can pick up a lot of it on the P8 because it doesn't have that noise gate. The Roadcaster Pro does a better job. I still use like third-party software to help to clean up audio to make it sound crisp and clean, but there's more effort required with the P8. And it, it's going to be a person-to-person thing. With the Rodecaster Pro, I can typically use microphones without a pop filter or a mic muff, though I still prefer having a mic muff or a pop filter because I think it really helps prevent the plosives and to keep the audio quality crisp. Right. A lot of these issues that I see with P8 can be fixed via a firmware upgrade. They've had one firmware upgrade, but it really didn't address any of any of the issues. The other thing that for some people that may be a bigger deal, and this is where like pricing, when you start looking at the pricing of the two based on the current pricing, that they're virtually the same because the P8 does not have built-in Bluetooth support. You have to buy a separate device and hook it up to your P8. That device costs $50. So the P8 right now costs $549. At that $50 in, that's $599. The Rodecaster Pro has the built-in Bluetooth, and it's $599. So their price is virtually then the same. So you're not really getting a cost savings. Some people will like the P8 more because it has that more portable function because it can run off batteries, and I still like that ability, and it has a lot of great features. But until they get a firmware update that really addresses just the audio quality and the sound quality, Listening back to the recordings, when we listen to like my track versus your track, your track was always sounding a lot cleaner, a lot crisper. And our last episode that we recorded was the first episode I used a Rodecaster Pro on since the very beginning, since our first five episodes. And the quality was consistent, and it was a lot better. And so that's why I had decided to just invest in the Rodecaster Pro, getting a second Rodecaster Pro for this remote recording because I think it's just the quality is better, the functionality is better. There are things that I like on the P8, but I think just in terms of 
getting that consistency is what's so important. And I wasn't getting that after eight months of fine-tuning the PA. What have your experiences, because you haven't used anything but the Rodecaster Pro, but what is your experience since kind of taking over and controlling the board yourself? It wasn't as complex as I thought it would be, I guess. You know, when you see someone else doing it, you think, okay, it may be a bit more complex. But outside of that, because we already configured everything together at some point, there's really not a lot to do in terms of maintenance. And obviously, last time I mentioned when I was cleaning, I knocked some of the the switches off, and I was like, oh, crap, (laughs) what did I do? But that didn't have anything major that I couldn't undo, right? But outside of that, it's a pretty simple, straightforward tool. Even with the app, it's pretty simple, too. And I think they've just developed it pretty nicely with the newer firmware, right, with the colors and everything else like that. So it, it is pretty nice overall. I think the only bit is still that whole bit about exporting. Right. Where they could make it simpler or quicker, but again, it's not it's not a deal breaker. I think when we were initially doing it from your Mac and it was taking the hours and hours yeah. and hours. But again, you know, they fixed that with the was it making an MP three now? Yeah. So when you export now it's the file, MP3 and stuff file like that. versus the wave file. And I was using a twelve inch MacBook to do the exports right. at the time. So number one, that was slower. Number two is at the time, it was a combination of it has to stitch those polyway files and then export the wave files. And those are huge right. files. And now it's just an MP3 file that, or we still use multi-track, so you get all the MP3s for right. each of the channels. But still, the MP3 files are a lot smaller than the wave files. So it goes a lot faster. It's not as fast as the P8. The P8 Literally, every track, even when you have it in multi-track, is a WAV file, but you can just copy and paste it over right. once you mount exactly. the PA. So that, that still takes time, computer. but yeah. At the end of the day, was it maybe takes 20, 30 minutes now? So yeah, it's, it's a lot faster now. And with the latest firmware, you can also use the Rodecaster Pro as a controller if you're streaming so that you can control things like multi-camera. And so there's a lot more versatility right now with the Rodecaster Pro than with the P8. Again, the P8 is still a good piece of hardware, I think, for my purposes and also for our purposes for recording. It's not up to par yet, but it's nothing that can't be fixed in firmware. So it can all be fixed through firmware updates. And if Zoom introduces those firmware updates, they can make it really a stronger device. So it's definitely something good. And, and I'm hoping that they do release firmware updates that will further enhance and improve the quality of the P8 because there's a lot of potential with it. And then, you know, I'll be ha- happy at that point to give it another try and then give it a much more fair comparison between the Rodecaster Pro and the P8. But the thing is just the amount involved in trying to get the audio quality. And that's really the, my biggest issue is getting that consistent audio. It's been so hard to really get that level of consistency from episode to episode, switching out mics, changing settings, tweaking things. And with the Rodecaster Pro, it's been a lot simpler just in the one episode of this podcast and two episodes of this other podcast that I've been putting together called Road to 20 Podcast, that those were all recorded. Those three episodes were all recorded on the Rodecaster Pro and the quality is just so much better. So I think that's been one of the major improvements with the Rodecaster Pro. 
and which makes the the episodes more consistent and the tracks more consistent because we're both now using the same equipment. We're still using different mics because you're using a RodePod mic. I'm using the Zoom mic, which previously I wasn't using. I was using the Procaster mic because I thought that the quality on the Procaster is better, and it is. The Procaster mic is actually a little better than the Zoom mic, but with the Rodecaster Pro now, it's almost not really noticeable anymore. It was definitely worth it, but I had to wait months because I had decided a few months ago that I was going to probably do it, and then the Rodecaster Pro went on back order for months because of, I'm assuming, because of the global semiconductor and chip shortage. And so as soon as it became available, it was like, okay, let me just go get it now before it's sold out again and on another right. round back order. But, I mean, it, it works out well. Let's talk about one more thing, and this is Windows 365. In essence, it's Windows on a cloud PC. I mean, I can see cases where companies can use this. I can also see where this can be very pricey, too, because I told you I was like just kind of messing around with the numbers when the pricing came out. And when I was starting to kind of configure a performance-driven cloud PC, based on my experience using virtual PCs, that it's almost the cost of buying a computer, buying a laptop, like a decent laptop. Right. What are your thoughts in terms of when you heard about, like, Windows 365 and, and this cloud PC coming out? Initially, it sounded like a cool offering, but then the price point just really messed that all up, uh, given that... I was telling you about this. In Azure, you could spin up machines too, but they're much cheaper. Right. And you're just charged for when you actually have them on. So you can just power them down, power back up. You only charge for when it's powered up. But for these, that's not the case. You're just being charged the cost for, was it one year? Whatever you pick. Right. It's pretty much it. like buying a, a normal 365 subscription. Right. Exactly. So you're spending a lot of money on that where why wouldn't you have a physical machine? But... Right. I guess on the flip side, if you think about it, if you're a company and you have contractors and you don't necessarily want to send them equipment, that's a good method versus, I guess, VDI and you know bringing up your own infrastructure to have VDIs and things like that. This is sort of that type of solution there that they can use for those type of contractors who may have to do work, but you don't want to necessarily send them equipment. You have an issue with equipment. Now, how do you get it fixed? You have to send another one, things like that, versus having it virtually in the cloud. Well... If something happens to it, just blow the profile away or blow that machine away, spin up a new one, get the data on there, and easy as that. Right. I can also see where if, let's say, your company has Mac users and for some reason they need to access a Windows environment or they need to right. access software that is Windows-specific. Let's take, for example, let's say with a lot of people still working remotely due to the pandemic, you have your finance and accounting teams and that software runs off Windows, but they have a Mac at home. Well, now using 365, they can remote in to this Windows cloud PC and have access to a desktop, which has access to the software and just work without having any sort of interruption. And so they can keep their Mac environment locally, but have access to the Windows environment that they need to work remotely. It can also be helpful for like developers who have to test in multiple platforms and maybe even in multiple versions of windows i don't think they've specified if it's well i guess right now if you were to get it if it's available i don't know if it's available yet but it could support windows 10 and 
Windows 11 when it comes out. So if you need to test out like Windows 10 for a piece of software and app that's being developed and you need to test it in both Windows 10 and 11, you can now, rather than having one PC in your office that runs all of this, now you can have maybe a general account for the company and then your developers just kind of using that group of cloud PCs to do the testing. That's another scenario in which you could possibly use it. There are definitely use cases, and I think for large companies, it may be beneficial. From a small business side, it's a little tricky. I think it's a little bit difficult to justify it. Although, like I said, if you maybe if you're like an advertising agency where you have primarily Mac users, or maybe everyone's on a Mac, but you need to run your accounting software that only runs on Windows, and you don't want to deviate from having one Windows machine in your organization, then the way you could do it is virtual machine where you have access to Windows, and that's fine. But, I mean, if you take some accounting software, maybe if it's hosted already in a Windows environment, it solves your problem. So, again, you have to weigh your options. So there are use cases, but it's not going to be cheap. Like I said, I was just kind of interested in seeing what a configuration would be if, let's say, for some reason I wanted to use it for testing, for example. The other thing is that they don't offer you, like, a significant trial, and this is where I miss things like Microsoft TechNet where you pay for an annual subscription, then you have access to this whole library of software to use. And you could then run it. It wasn't like the 90-day trials. It was an unlimited trial, in essence, as long as you were a subscriber, with the rule that you're not using it in a production environment. So like for me, I can use it in a non-production environment for testing so that I could see how everything works. And it would have been nice if they offered something like that with Windows 365, where it's not limited to like a 90-day trial, and afterwards we start charging your credit card for it, they have something more like a tech net where you can use it with an unlimited trial. You just don't use it in a production environment. But obviously the caveat there is, well, how do you keep people from not using it in a production environment? Because exactly. even with tech net, you know, I'm sure that there were people who were, they weren't following the rules and they were using the software for production environments, even though they weren't supposed to. Now it's a little right. bit different because there's none of that. It's either a 30 or 90 day trial and then it converts to paid service, or it's just straight paid service. Yeah. Again, the pricing is literally saying you're buying a brand new computer every year. That was really right. Yeah, and it, it makes no sense to. to and I don't to think do anyone that. can really justify that to be a true cost. Right, because I I was considering this as an option, like if I wanted to test that Windows 11 when it comes out, that that might be a way to go. But the pricing is just ridiculous, because I didn't want to put Windows 11 in a live environment on a live production machine to test out right. because if something went wrong, then that's it. And I was trying to avoid getting a separate piece of equipment to have to run it. But, you know, this cloud PC, the one I configured, costs just as much as buying a laptop, a decent laptop that will be able to handle Windows 11. So at that point, why don't I just get a decent laptop that can handle Windows 11? At that right, point. which will last probably years versus, right. again, you're going to spend that same amount in a year's time, yeah. which makes and then sense. The, right, and then the other thing is in terms of a cloud environment or a virtual environment, you know already that doesn't perform as well as a native local machine. And when you know that, it's like, well, you can't really test something to the full extent because you know that any glitch in performance will likely be associated with the fact that it's because it's running in a virtual environment. So you could boost it up to the equivalent of a minimum of 
quad core process Intel processor like i7 or above want at least 16 gigs of RAM high-end graphics whatever you can put all that in the equivalent of that in a cloud PC but it's still not necessarily going to perform the same as a native machine with that because exactly. it's not also on a cloud PC it's not a physical piece of hardware it's a virtual piece of hardware running off a bigger piece of hardware of physical hardware and anything can go wrong that's the other thing. And I guess that's the other well, thing. Well, I mean, if, if their solution goes down yeah. or there's an interruption, I, I don't know how many, if, if you subscribe to all their alerts or anything like that, I do that through work for 0365, and you just get alert after alert. This service oh, is not working. And now they that built it into Outlook. Yeah, there's an issue for that. Have, have you oh, noticed yeah, that? It yep. just pops open yes. the little window and gives you the list of things that go wrong. Like, was this helpful? No. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, so there are a lot of helpful. notifications, right? You uh, Again, you could scope it down to just the ones you want to see, right. but I just have them all turned on just because... We use a lot of services, yeah. not all of them, but a lot of them. But just looking on a day-to-day basis, the number of issues that they have, it's ridiculous. The other day, their portal went down, right? and there was a notification for that too because I was trying to get into it to look at something. Couldn't get in, but it's part of my job to be able to get in there right. to look up stuff. I couldn't look anything up. I have to find an alternative way to do it. Yeah. But think about that. But now, if your PC is in that world and something goes on, and you have work to do, you're stuck pretty much. Right. I mean, it's also had a lot of weird quirks, because sometimes if I'm trying to use something like for Exchange Online, trying to put in something on the blacklist, or something on the whitelist, where I've noticed lately it's not saving, and it says, like, something went wrong. Try again later. And then if you go back in a few hours later, now it's working. It's like, but right. there's no alert for it. So it's like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. They don't give you alerts for everything. Something right. that they could probably resolve a little bit or there are enough complaints about it, they don't put it on there. Right. Yeah, there's all sorts of little quirks. And then from the early days, because I was one of the early adopters of 365 when it first came out, and after using it all these years, it's like they keep moving things around in order to make it better, but every time they move things around, something else breaks. So it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And it's like, is anyone actually going through and testing to make sure everything works? Because... It's really frustrating when you go through here and it's like simple things that you should be able to make a change and save. It doesn't work. I've had like adding an alias to an email address. Save it. It's like didn't save. Go back in and say, why isn't it working? It didn't save it. It said it saved it. It didn't save. You go back and you save it again. Now it saves. Or I want to delete something and it's like it says it's deleted. Go back in. It's still there. It's like what's going on here? Yeah, I've had issues where, you know, I try to license for a product. License it. Checkbox saved. Okay, great. Go to test it later. I'm like, why is it still not working? Go back in there. Not checked. I'm like, I know I did it. Right. And it, ha- it wasn't just one time. It happened multiple times. I'm like, I, no, I know I did it. Yeah. I saved it. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to apply it, then refresh the page, and then check it again, make yeah. sure it actually applied. Right. Then you know you're not going crazy. But you shouldn't have to double check it. You shouldn't have to do that. And also provisioning of services, like new services, sometimes takes really long because it has to propagate through the entire system. I've seen some right. provisioning. It's instant. You know, you set up a new email address and within 10 minutes or less, it's yeah. it's there. They, it's ready to they, go. Well, they protect themselves now by just saying up to 24 hours or 48 yeah. hours, blah, 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 blah. Usually, you know, it's pretty quick, but yeah, yeah there can no, be No, I've, I've had one where I had to reset. This was going back early on where I had to reset someone's user password for their account. Reset it. I get the notification that it's reset locally. And normally I get an email that says it's been reset and the user will get an email. And it's like 30, 40 minutes later, still no email. 
and they can't reset, they can't get in. So I go back in and reset it again. I think I did it like two or three times. Finally, the email comes in and says it's been reset. And then followed by that, two or three more emails with it saying that it reset again. And it's like, that's not the way the system should run. You know, there's something wrong if you have to do it that many times. Yep, exactly. So there's some sort of bug, there's some sort of glitch, and they have to be on top of this to fix it. And now a lot of the documentation, if you need to find how to do something, all the documentation is outdated now because it hasn't been updated with all the recent changes they made. So it's like, yep. go here and click on this button, go to this. It's like, it's not here anymore because that's the old way of doing it. You don't exactly. have that option anymore. Right, because you get new view, old view. You're in the new view now. How do I do a new view? Right. Nope, got to switch back to old view just because that's all the documents they have. Yeah. And if you also have like multiple admin accounts, for example, and, and that's the other thing with admin accounts is if you purchase something, services using one admin account, you can't remove those services or make changes through a different admin account. You have to go back to the original admin account. So the important thing is not to allow many different admins to provision different new services, specifically not, not provision being buying the services. Because right. it's tied to the account that was used to buy the services originally. So if, let's say, you use John Smith's credit card and their account to provision the first five exchange online accounts, and then you use Jane Doe's account to provision the next five, the first five can only, if you need to change, like, uh, billing information, only the John Smith account can go and change the billing information. Right. The, yep. the Jane Doe account can change that even if... The Jane Doe account is an admin with the same privileges. And it's like, well, that's kind of stupid now because then you should have just one master. And you should tell people, you should tell companies, you have to have one master user account that does all the buying and then have all the other admins do anything else. Because otherwise, only that one account can make changes to billing information. So let's say a credit card's about to expire and the person who is running everything can't get into the account. They're on vacation for two weeks. Well, you can't change the payment method now because they have to get in with their account. You can't use yep. any other admin account. And it's kind of silly exactly. that, that that's the way it's designed. It should be at, at the corporate level so that you don't have to deal with it. But, you know, there's some issue. I think there's some people outside making noise. Gotcha. So hopefully it won't end up on, on the mic. It may. Usually we get fire trucks and police cars and stuff. Here we've got someone right. singing or doing something. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to cover in this episode? No, I think we are good for today. All right. So thanks for listening to the Dave and Ron Show podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Mixcloud, and Verbal. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Dave and Ron Show. I also want to note that Apple Podcasts still does not have our updated cover art months later. I've reached out to them a number of times. They keep telling me that they know that there's a problem with updating cover art, but Apple Podcasts is the only platform where our cover art is not updated. If you see that it's not updated, that's the reason. But on every other platform, cover art is up to date. Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye, everyone.